Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there. We're not doing things the way we have done the past 100 years. We are trying to think differently. There's a lot of new technologies we're exploring and a lot of different ways of managing the grid. Whether by choice or not, the change of the world is coming. So I think if we keep all our minds open, we keep working forward on different ways of thinking um, on every side of the table, we're going to be able to hit those goals. A simple mention of the word can send shivers down a developer's spine. Interconnection. It's the boogeyman of the energy transition. Prolonged delays and exorbitant upgrade costs can doom projects before they even get off the ground. The interconnection slog may be the single biggest threat to national and local clean energy and climate goals. And the people critical to improving the process, developers, utilities, and regulators, don't always get along, to say the least. I'm John Ingle, Content Director for Renewable Energy World, and this week on Factor This, we head to the Northeast for an intimate look at the challenges and opportunities facing distributed energy resource interconnection in the region. I'm joined by National Grid's Distributed Generation Ombudsperson, Michael Porcaro, Convergent Energy and Power Regulatory Affairs Manager, Emma Marshall-Torres, and Rhode Island PUC Commissioner, Abigail Anthony. They'll each be speaking at the Grid Tech Connect Forum Northeast in Newport, Rhode Island, October 23rd through the 25th. Listeners can get 20% off admission to the event by using the promo code PODCAST at checkout. Register today by clicking the link in the episode description. That's all next on Factor This from Renewable Energy World. So let's set the stage. As the deployment of distributed energy resources, DERs, continues to surge in the north, Northeast, the need for effective interconnection strategies has become increasingly critical. However, various challenges in integrating these resources into the grid have emerged, ranging from both technical complexity to regulatory hurdles. Improvements to the interconnection process will require unconventional and proactive collaboration and understanding among developers, utilities, and regulators. We're lucky to have each of those key stakeholder groups represented by this panel. Um, so we'll get started real quick, just with some overview questions and understanding of the the challenge that faces this market. Emma, I would love to have you contextualize a little bit based on your experience through regulatory proceedings and convergence development process around the country, but more specifically in the Northeast market. How would you characterize the state of of distributed generation interconnection today? And and what are some of the, the bigger challenges that you face on the developer side? Yeah, thanks, John. And uh, thanks, everyone. Um, I would say, you know, if you ask any developer, the the challenge with interconnection is always uh, time and money, right? Um, And being able to reliably anticipate what those two variables will be in in any process for any of your assets. Um, I think across the Northeast, you know, New England and New York, there are excellent policies in place. Um, What we're dealing with now is how they're interpreted uh, interpreted by each of the states, each of the utilities, each of the projects and the areas that all of these projects are interconnected to, and to the popularity of these technologies and the volume of all of the projects coming into the queue. Um, so I think that there's, you know, in practice, this framework is excellent. What happens, you know, on the ground with each each of these processes or excuse me, each of these projects is 
perhaps something different. And I think that's where the real opportunity arises for us to work together and kind of really understand are, are, is the process and the intent aligning? And, you know, are we really accomplishing what we're hoping to with the way that things are written and how they're interpreted? So what have you seen as the greatest opportunities for collaboration, both with utilities and regulators? And and does there exist an environment today where outside of the official docket or regulatory proceeding, you can really engage in and get to the source of those challenges and maybe find some common understanding? You know, selfishly, I work for an energy storage developer, so perhaps I'll leave with that example. But in Massachusetts, there is an energy storage uh, interconnection review group. Uh, it's become so popular that there, I think the state is also looking at uh, standing up just an interconnection review group. Um, but it's it's just this forum that's separate from a docket. You know, it's this um, ongoing discussion with utilities, entities from the state, uh, industry, uh, you know, advocacy groups. Um, and it's just a big cross-functional dialogue. Um, the New York also has something similar. Uh, they have the policy and the technical focused interconnection working groups, the IPWG and the ITWG, respectively. Um, but, you know, both all of these forms kind of allow um, more of a conversational setting. And um, whether that's, like you said, you know, something under a docket or something independent of a docket like these groups, um, I think having that opportunity to just have a more discussion-based process um, is incredibly helpful. As someone who writes, you know, prepares written comments for part of my job, sometimes it's difficult to convey, um, you know, these concepts in writing and, you know, really say, hey, like the process is written this way, but I had a project go through this, you know, process and it got dinged for this, this and that. And we got pushed to the back of the queue. And that means, you know, a monetary effect of, you know, this many hundreds of thousands of dollars, or, you know, the project has been delayed for, you know, a year and a half. And those are kind of the real examples that I think sometimes we miss when we speak very, you know, loftily about these concepts. We don't, we kind of distance ourselves from the real on the ground effects of what that means for the projects that we're looking to get online. I would just add to that um, the cost allocations uh, conversations, that's usually under a docket, but the cost allocation studies are often uh, a really great intensive and, and definitely more technical um, process that kind of helps demystify interconnection costs and also presents an opportunity for stakeholders to assess whether that cost assignment is appropriate for each, for everybody involved, not just developers in the utility, but also the state, um, you know, ratepayers, uh, and to see too if that methodology has the intended consequence. Again, you know, is it being shouldered too much by one single party um, and are we hurting kind of disproportionately one entity over the other? Um, but I would say just working off, working in this industry requires a certain willingness to iterate off of each other and, and have a degree of, of creativity. So I think that we need to invest in the grid and invest in each other. Um, and so to ensure that we're making the most informed, safe and progressive choices as possible. And I think that requires, um, you know, the technical, you know, formal conversations in a docket and, and a written process, but also, you know, just a more conversational element to it as well. Yeah, I appreciate that. And with cost allocation, over to Commissioner Anthony. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, but how, how do you uh, take in this this challenge, Commissioner, just in that you have to analyze, engage these competing interests from both you know utilities and developers and find what is the best mix for Rhode Island and for the grid and making sure that we're in pursuit of a you know a cleaner energy environment, but also a resilient one. This this issue of interconnection, how high on the priority list is that? for regulators like yourself as you assess how this energy transition is really going to play out? Yeah, so let me address the policy challenge of interconnection first, and then maybe I can can talk about sort of how we think about grid investment decisions um, that we make generally, particularly the kind 
come to us for investments to improve system capacity uh, or to prepare the prepare the distribution for um, generation as well as load. But with respect to you know the policy challenges around DER interconnection, I think the problems that we're having now are because of policy decisions to allow very large projects to connect to the distribution system. I mean, that's Rhode Island's problem. That may not be the case in other states, but that's, you know, Rhode Island has very large projects that are um, connected at the distribution system level that I believe in other states would probably be um, feeding right onto the transmission system. But at the same time, I don't think it would take that much longer to get to the point where smaller projects were causing the same problems. Um, we're just, we've just reached it sooner because of these large projects. And so the policy challenge for the commission is how to dial up and down price signals to developers, both in time and in space. And then, I mean, uh, if we don't expose those interconnecting customers to the full price signal, who do you allocate the rest of you know, rest of those prices too. You know, what we think about is what is the fair way to recognize that distributed generation customers are customers, but that they also plan to be suppliers in the market for energy. And we have a whole, you know, group of other customers who are not generators. Um, so what we're looking for when we're setting price signals, because that's what we do and that's what we can do, is find a fair way to treat distributed generation as a customer um, but also send a price signal of whether and when we need those resources and when we can find, you know, what is the right balance that enables that healthy interconnection market. So that's, you know, that's with respect to, you know, answering Emma's question about cost allocation. That's how I think our commission thinks about it. And, and I would imagine other economic regulators are thinking about we set price signals. But I also thought it would be helpful to explain to your audience how we make decisions about investments that are intended to build the system for generation and build it for, you know, uh, expected load as well. And often those utility investment requests are coming to commissions like mine, particularly in the Northeast, uh, looking, seeking pre-approval of investments in grid modernization. Typically, utilities uh, historically have made investments in their system, and then they have to wait until they have a rate case in order to seek cost recovery for those investments. With grid modernization investments, largely due to the complex nature of the investments, the changing technology, the cause for the investments, they're like proactive investments, we're investing ahead of the need. Because of the nature of those investments, utilities often like to have their cost recovery or the investment pre-approved or approved in advance by regulators. And when utilities are doing that, they're shifting that investment risk from the utility and its shareholders onto commissions like mine. And when they're making, you know, now that the risk has been placed, uh, the investment risk decision has been placed on the commission and therefore on ratepayers. Uh, we want to look at those requests for pre-approval like we were business investors. You know, we're going to really want to understand in particular three things about the investment request. We want to understand the value. Uh, we want to understand the need and we want to understand the accountability. So we assess value using benefit cost analysis. And in Rhode Island, we use a fairly comprehensive uh, view of cost-benefit analysis, but we're looking to see, is there a value to utility customers for this investment? Many grid modernization investments have value that accrues to society at large 
or to participants. And in this case, participants might be the, the interconnecting generators themselves. Um, all of those things we're looking at, the surest value case that a utility can make to us is that rate, you know, rate payers, that customers are going to um, benefit from the investment that they're proposing. The next thing that we're looking for is a needs case. You know, is this investment needed to serve customers, to maintain reliability, and to keep people safe on the system? And the utility has to establish, you know, even in an evidentiary case that the investment is needed and that it's needed on a particular timeline. And that is much harder to do than it might sound. If you have an old system that is sort of lacking in investment, it might be easy to prove that you need a lot of investment in order to meet reliability standards or customer requirements or legal standards. But if you have a relatively new system or a system that has seen continuous investment, it's going to be a lot harder to make that case for need. So a decision that the Rhode Island Public Utilities Commission made earlier this year, and so I can talk about it, um, I think is a really good example of how hard it is to make that needs case for a proactive investments in the system. In this case, the utility was seeking pre-approval in their annual capital investment plan for a large advanced recloser and grid modernization uh, investment program. The utility was arguing that the deployment of advanced reclosers was necessary to uh, combat deteriorating reliability on the system and to meet changing customer expectations. They hadn't provided any evidence in the case that customer expectations were changing. They did present evidence meant to show that reliability was declining, but some fairly simple you know, analysis showed that there was no trend in declining reliability. And in fact, this past year had been one of their most positive reliability experiences. So, you know, it goes to show that it's really hard to make this case that there is a need for proactive investment. And it's tricky on a system like Rhode Island that's been well-maintained, that has supportive regulatory mechanisms for continuous and regular investment. It's hard to show that incrementally better in newer things are going to, you know, it's harder to show need and timing for those. And I've said timing a lot. And so I want to touch on timing because I think this is the piece that touches most on grid modernization in the system investments that your audience is probably most interested in. The timing of need is really important to whether we approve an investment or not. The legal standard that we must follow uh, to authorize pre-approval for capital investments is that the investment needs to be needs to be needed in the near term and the long term. So in that that same recent case I was talking about, the utility argued that it would need advanced sensors and advanced controls to manage load and generation levels that were expected in 2036. Now, since the utility is asking for my pre-approval, now the risk is on me as to whether that forecast for load and generation is going to materialize 15 years from now. The utility needed to make the case that the investment is needed now because it isn't obvious that I'd want to make a capital investment now for something that might happen in 15 years. Um, the utility was testifying that they really ha weren't having these problems on the system now that would require these investments. They were just anticipating them in the future. And, you know, we might not want to um, invest in something now that will be nearly fully depreciated by the time of need, should that even, should that need even materialize. You know, those are some of the things that make it really tricky for commissions like mine to grant pre-approval for some of the 
grid modernization and advanced um, and system expansion that interconnecting customers want to see. So I'll just, I'll leave it at that for now, but uh, I hope that that might be a helpful way of understanding how we think. Yeah, thank you, Commissioner. And welcome, Michael Porcaro from uh, National Grid. I'm glad we were finally able to get you in through the the, the gatekeepers of our, our webinar today. Let's go over to you because I gave Emma and, and Abigail both opportunities to frame a little bit about how they're approaching the, the DER interconnection challenge. Um, so we've heard from the developer point of view, now the regulator point of view, Michael, as a from the utility side of things, how how big of an issue is this for you right now and your your company as you're trying to not only address the challenges you have near term, like Commissioner Anthony was just talking about, but planning for what we know is just going to be this surge in the coming 10, 15 years and making sure that you know a utility as, as crucial as national grid is not flat-footed as that transition takes place. Yeah, no, thank you. So we do see it as a pretty big issue of how we're going to manage all these interconnections going forward. So for I can talk a little bit about what National Grid's been seeing at the Massachusetts area and discussing it with a lot of colleagues in different areas across the Northeast. I think everyone's kind of heading towards the same type of uh, scenarios that we're seeing here. Like a lot of those other jurisdictions, it's, it's where we have some really uh, lucrative incentive programs and very aggressive energy targets in the area that want to drive a lot of the DER interconnections. Right now in Mass, there's a there's over four gigawatts of solar that's currently installed and that puts mass in the the number three spot for nationwide for total solar installed per square mile um and going forward the state has a lot of aggressive goals to double and triple those over the next 10 years even so it's pretty aggressive so i, I guess just want to note that because there's a lot of der that's already installed within a really tight space and we're looking to install a lot more that's coming pretty quickly. Just within the national grid area alone, we have um, just shy of two and a half gigawatts of total DER interconnected to date. And then we have about two gigawatts more in queue and 80% of that is batteries. And the batteries carry some extra complicating factors because they act as a load and generator and can be operating at any time of day. Like all that is really to say that we have a higher complexity of what we're trying to connect. And then we're having a high volume that's coming in very quickly. So the grid really just isn't set up for that right now. Um, the only way to really accommodate it is to build out going forward. So that's really the biggest challenge that we're seeing. We know that there's gonna have to be firm capacity upgrades to the grid. A lot of infrastructure investments have to do that at the distribution and transmission level. So that's really the thing that we're, we're most focusing on right now that we're gonna have to work past. Um, and a lot of the studies that we're doing, any project that looks to connect, we do a study to see what impacts it has to the grid. And we also do our normal planning studies and analysis for the area with load growth and projections for DER and electrification in the future. More often, we're seeing the need for you know major feeder reworking, major substation expansion, and, and even brand new T to D interfaces, so new substations coming up across the state. So it's it's quite a bit to have to handle. And I though there's a there's different hurdles that you have to get past as a regulated utility. You know, I think I heard it mentioned here a bit that there's we need to justify the need. You have to have a prudent spend for anything that you're going to invest on the grid. So there's there's uh, there needs to be kind of a you know an acknowledgement that if we're going to be driving towards some of these state goals, th there's going to have to be a way found to fund it. But like, what's the most fair way to do that? You know, right now the majority of those costs go towards the developers that are trying to interconnect with those particular projects. And there's different cost allocation and cost sharing approaches that have come up. Um, and right now within Mass, we have our ESMP, uh, the Electric Sector Modernization Plan, where the, all the utilities are coming up with their plans and proposal for how to upgrade the grid to increase capacity for all that electrification and DER. So those are kind of the challenges that we see that we're trying to work through. And they are, there's some major hurdles to get past over the next uh, five to 10 years. 
Well, and Commissioner Anthony was mentioning that, you know, each of these cases has to appeal to both the near-term challenge and the long-term challenge, and there has to be some level of evidence that these investments are needed. How tricky is that for the regulated utility to navigate then, knowing that beyond the anecdotal account of we expect all these EVs and all this battery storage and all the solar to, to come to the grid over the next five to 10 years, but we need to be able to almost prove it to a degree. Does that get tricky to square with what those uh, regulators like Commissioner Anthony are looking for? It does get tricky. Um, I think the the higher level you look at it, the easier it is for both sides to come to agreement that there is a need. But when you have to get down to the granular level and the specifics of where we're upgrading, what we're upgrading, and by how much we're upgrading, that's where it gets a little trickier. So we don't know as a utility or as, as a regulator or anybody within the state, even developers, right, have some trouble knowing exactly where you're going to seek the land and want to site your project. And on the same now with the, the advent of batteries becoming more popular on the same footprint that you used to have a five megawatt uh, solar field, you could potentially put a 30 megawatt battery field. So it, it's just a different animal. So if we were to have to, as utilities, go to the regulators and say, this is exactly where things are going to go. This is how much capacity I need that gets difficult. With the ESMP, um, that sector modernization plan we're coming up with, uh, it's somewhat of a reverse approach. We're looking at maximizing hosting capacity within an area within reasonable cost amounts, trying to increase the overall grid uh, capacity factor. But um, yeah, trying to to define it on a project by project or location by location basis of what we say is coming, it's uh, it's it's very much an unknown. And Emma, I know you, you're a lot of your work is on the the proactive investment side, you know, pushing utilities to not only integrate faster but make the investments that are needed now and in the future while balancing that risk and um, these issues of cost allocation. How much of your time is is focused on the cost allocation issue, and and how would you say that's going today? Um, <laughs> I, I would say that cost allocation is a thorny subject. It's a very technical subject, um, and I think individual developers often you know look to policy groups and advocacy groups to kind of assist in their understanding of you know how the utilities approach it. I think cost allocation is certainly it's cropping up everywhere, and I think that I, you know as I'm think both of my other panelists will say, it needs to make sense, right? The numbers need to, the math needs to work out and it needs to be trued up. And so I see cost allocation as perhaps the most quantitative way to rationalize what we're hoping to do and to kind of make everything copacetic across the board. You know, I think that that's one part science, one part art, you know, and, and, and kind of that's where it becomes both quantitative and qualitative. And, you know, the discussion, as I said earlier, of trying to determine if the way that we've allocated costs is really, you know, bringing about the results that we're looking to see. And, you know, uh, if it's helping or hurting each individual actor, you know, um, in this wider process. But I, I think that cost allocation, uh, you know, it's becoming a, a bigger uh, focus of mine, you know, both independently and through my work in policy groups. And I think it will only continue to be. And I think that cost allocation and the interconnection process, you know, it's going to have to iterate over time. As Michael said, you know, once it was, you know, just we were just focusing on solar. Now it's storage. Now it's going to be more dynamic, load responsive, not just as from storage assets, but perhaps demand response kind of 
even more and more localized um, manipulation of how energy is used and saved and, you know, transferred across the distribution and transmission system. So I only expect that to become a, a bigger and bigger topic over time. And Michael, at GridTech, you are leading a session or participating in a session called Finding Balance in Grid Upgrade Cost Sharing. And we're, we're featuring both the utility that, you know, the regulator and developer point of view there. Curious, how, how tricky do you think that'll be to navigate just knowing that there are obviously com- competing viewpoints on that issue and some some contention around the cost sharing debate what do you think is the best path forward for you know all three of the key stakeholder groups in trying to find the best way to balance risk and still streamline deployment so there's a couple different ways to look at cost allocation that i've seen explored here in massachusetts at least one is a a cost share approach where you could have one entity put up the money to be able to enable the upgrade and then as future developers come online they end up paying the initial payer back. But um, that means that somebody still has to put up all the money up front. And that worked well here for a while, but not with the level of upgrades that we're seeing now. It's just too much money for an individual project to put up with with still staying economical. Um, Another way that was explored that I think would probably be the better approach and more sustainable is where the utilities are allowed to assess an area, identify the upgrades to uh, enable hosting capacity amongst a, a, a targeted geographic region. So say somewhere around two or three substations, so maybe like a town or up to one to three towns, um, and upgrading the capacity in that area, identify the costs for those. And then as every subsequent DER comes and connects, then they pay back towards that utility base. And then there there would have to be some mechanism for what happens if all the DER expected doesn't show up. But that kind of shows that um, the state and the regulators have faith that the targets that they've set for the state are legitimate and it's something that they really want to encourage moving forward. So there could be programs that even incentivize interconnecting, things of that nature. Um, it allows the utilities to go ahead and build now so that we can start getting the infrastructure in place to accommodate the DER. And then it gives the developers some cost certainty so they know what they're getting into upfront. They have a better projection of how they can run their site going forward. It just seems like the uh, the best balance for everybody, but it, it, there's a lot of nuance that goes with that. It's not as, as easily said than done. You know? Hey Factor This listeners, it's John Ingle. I wanted to let you know that you can now watch every new episode of the Factor This podcast on YouTube. Just search Renewable Energy World and leave a rating and review while you're there. Thanks for listening. Yeah, and and Commissioner Anthony, if you can give us an idea of how you view the issue of cost allocation. I know we touched on it uh, earlier, but how is Rhode Island approaching that debate and, and really where we find the balance and risk sharing? Well, I guess I would only just speak for myself and in, in, you know, generally what I try to do in all my decisions and including those about interconnection are assigning risk to the entity that can manage the risk. And, you know, in some cases for some investments, you know, the risk is so large that it can only be managed by, you know, society. There are some risks that can't be, you know, can only be managed um, or can't be managed, so we socialize them. Yeah. To what extent can the interconnecting customer manage the risk, manage the cost of the interconnection? To what extent can, as Michael was saying, when there's decisions of being made about upgrading certain feeders, so that's where they anticipate generation is going to interconnect, to what extent is can the risk be managed by utility? And can any of that risk, you know, the ratepayer base itself can't really manage any of that risk. And so if the interconnecting customers or the utility are looking for cost allocation mechanisms that assign costs to ratepayers, there has to be some other reason that they should be 
you know, carrying some of that cost because they can't manage they can't manage the risk of that of the internet connection cost. I'd like to real quickly kind of go around the horn here and address what what you see as some of the near term possible solutions to not only the the interconnection queues and and connecting more distributed energy resources to the grid, but because we've talked a lot about new build and proactive infrastructure, but what are some of the existing policies or pieces of technology that we can use to really jumpstart this process and hopefully improve it all around? I know there's a lot of movement on the distributed energy resource management system side, the the DERM side, and Michael, I'm sure you have some thoughts there, but how do we get the most of what we have today to make sure that developers like Convergent, like Emma, can connect more projects to the grid. Yeah, so I can, I can talk a little bit there. Yeah, that, that's the biggest challenge, right? Being able to wait for that firm capacity to be ready. And the way that is uh, kind of planned out right now is because we need to make sure the grid is ready for whatever conditions could be thrown at it. So as you're adding more generation to the grid, whatever it may be, and as loads are increasing, um, making sure that we don't exceed any of the the feeder ratings and we don't overload them. And anytime we allow a site to come online before we have that firm capacity ready and in place, then there's an inherent risk to the system. And the higher the volume you allow online, the more that risk increases. But to your point, John, being able to take care, uh, take advantage of what we have existing on the grid right now, there is the opportunity to interconnect, but you would have to manage it through a DERMS automated system because that is one that would monitor the conditions of the grid in real time, be able to have an intelligent engine that tells the sites on the grid when they need to curtail or trim back their their, uh, activity to be able to avoid any of those system issues. And it it can do it just during those hours of the year where it's really necessary. So for some sites, it may mean that there's a very limited amount of time where they're actually gonna be impacted and they can still operate at virtually, you know, 100% nameplate at the rest of the year. And ideally in the future, having multiple sites work together, for instance, coordinating so that a battery is charging at the time when all the solar wants to discharge and allowing everybody to go 100% activity and shifting the activity to the right point where it helps the grid. That's really where those systems are going to help. And it does that by le- by looking at what the allowable limits are on the grid. So that means that if we can start getting these systems activated, you can interconnect more projects onto the grid today that will just have to dynamically move and shift with what the grid can allow. But that will at least allow you to interconnect in the three, four, five, six year time frame when we're waiting for the firm capacity to be installed. Then once that's installed, then you know perhaps some of those controls are alleviated or we just are able to manage that much more coming on. I mean, if you look at some of the state goals in Mass and some of the other states, it's uh, you know, they're in the 10, 20 gigawatt range for solar and storage and they're they're very high. So even to get to that level, I think you have to maintain that type of control. But I do think it's a it's a key part in trying to enable and keep moving forward. Okay, Emma, your response on the developer side, the asset owner side, that takes a level of trust between utility and asset owner and you're ceding control over your project to the utility when they need it. How is Convergent approaching the the DERMS dynamic, which you know we've seen these systems being deployed around the country and we're likely to see more in the you know the coming years? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it really depends on the application, right? Um, you know, we have projects in which we work with utilities and, you know, there is a degree of operational control that the utility has in order to, you know, optimize the asset. Um, you know, whether or not that is the right stance to take across the board in a competitive program, I'm not sure. Um, you know, I think that there's an ongoing discussion, if, you know, if we're just talking about batteries here, that there is kind of an, an innate, you know, economic incentive to operate and optimize your battery along the lines of, you know, peaks and valleys. Um, so, 
whether or not that needs to be an explicit policy, like an operational schedule, um, I think is up for discussion. I think that most seasoned battery operators are already doing that because that's just what makes the most, you know, financial sense for the asset and, you know, helps us be part of the solution. But I think that what some of the things that Massachusetts is exploring and, you know, some of the things that could be helpful to offer to the industry is just guidance of where to put these assets and kind of when you want them to be on, right? So maybe not necessarily being too prescriptive about when they're operating, but often Offering programs or just transparent information to say, you know, here's when we expect, you know, the peaks to occur or, you know, in the case of something more locationally sensitive, soliciting non-wires alternatives to say, hey, this is a particularly congested area. It would be very useful if we had, you know, a distributed sided a distributed sided storage asset. Or, you know, I know that there was in the Clean Peak Standard Program, there was this idea of having a, a distributed circuit multiplier, this idea that you would kind of direct storage assets to be located near particularly solar or PV intensive areas to kind of locationally like smooth the peak of, you know, the solar generation, which I think is a pretty unique and innovative idea. But yeah, just kind of democratizing information. So developers who, you know, are kind of by nature competitive and looking to optimize things, you know, just sending us in the right place and, you know, telling us what to do uh, in a way that kind of offers some some leeway that competitive industry and, and our hosts, our, our host tenants that we serve are also willing to kind of comply with. Do the three of you think we're moving towards an environment where there is more collaboration and transparency around that available data and the, the ability to just share what information we have, knowing that hopefully we all have the goal of having a cleaner, more reliable and resilient grid. To Emma's point, having that information ahead of time and to have a bit of a proactive dialogue could really help facilitate that. Um, it's something we talk about a lot, but in practice, is that happening today or is it happening enough between developer and utility? And I, I would think that regulators would would want that collaboration to occur as well, probably make your job easier, Commissioner Anthony, I would assume. I do think that we're, we're moving towards there. I think that there's there's improvement really on both sides too. So I know this is obviously, a, it's a utility focus, right? But we do, at least in Massachusetts, and again, I know a lot of the others in the Northeast have similar type constructs. Uh, we have hosting capacity maps. We have heat maps that show loading. We have other maps that show study status of uh, where, how far projects are along and different group study processes and whatnot. Um, so trying to get that upfront communication out. And even as applications come in, they get advised in a, in a pre-application form of what the conditions are on the feeder, which kind of gives a general in, in, you know, directionality of whether or not you're looking at substation upgrades or a simple feeder upgrade, uh, how difficult and congested the area is. And I heard mentioned earlier, you know, we have several different working groups here in Mass. So we have a technical working group, we have an, a battery working group, and there's a third uh, interconnection implementation working group that's getting put together for just for policy discussions. So I think we're getting towards that. Or we, we are already having those discussions to keep the transparency as open as we can. To go back to the DERMS construct, the only way a DERMS or an advanced system automation works is if you have a more robust set of feeder monitoring uh, data points. So you have to inherently get more data from the grid to have those types of systems work. Once we have that data gathered, you know, working through any confidentiality conflicts, um, sharing as much of that information as possible. And it would then be in real time with the uh, developers who are looking to site locations in the state. It, it can only be helpful. So I think that's part of our ultimate goal to get down to that point too. Commissioner Anthony, any thoughts on transparency and collaboration? Yeah, no, and I think this is uh, reflective of my earlier comment about like, we need price signal. You know, we need smooth and predictable price signals, but those that's, that signal 
that are aligned with time and location and the resource, you know, the the resource that we need. I guess I just would also one challenge that I think we're all facing is that you know developers are also responding to lots of price signals that are outside the power system, and sometimes those price signals are going to be a lot stronger or really the driver of a lot stronger than the the price signal come you know from from the interconnection itself. And so yes, the utility system information and the transparency that is is helpful, but there are also other lots of other pricing models, including you know the ones that we see the most are, are land prices, and that's where that people are responding to. And Michael is highlighting all of the arguments that National Grid and, and then Rhode Island Energy has been you know made to our commission for their grid modernization investments. But I don't you know I don't know how much a lot of those that grid modernization is going to help us interconnect 50 megawatts in, in Western Rhode Island. So, you know, a lot of the size of the projects that we're seeing developed are in the queue in Rhode Island are, you know, that's that's what they're, you know, they are very, very large projects being developed in rural and remote parts of the state. I'm, I'm not sure that grid modernization is the uh, limiting factor in those cases. Okay, we do have some questions here. Oh, Emma, I skipped over you. Do you, do you have any thoughts on the I think, you know, I, I think I would probably be reiterating past points that I made, but I think that, you know, we are headed in a really great direction. And I think for, you know, any of the states in, in New England that haven't yet shared the hosting capacity maps and, you know, some of this more kind of location specific information, that's really what helps the competitive industry. And that's, you know, what gets the lowest price or competitive price power to, you know, rate payers is just liberate the information in order for us to put it in the best place and, you know, make sure that the process is, you know, transparent enough that we can kind of anticipate, you know, the process before we make these investments. So that it comes on in the cheap, in the most affordable, kind of fastest way possible uh, in order to meet these goals. But I, I will also say to just, you know, having these processes supplemented by those more conversational forums, like I mentioned, that's what helps, you know, um, just again, make sure that the policy is in line with the intent. Okay, so we have about 15 minutes left and more than a dozen questions. This one's from Bria. She says, super interesting discussion. I would love to hear more about what data and information that utilities and regulators do not have access to today that would make it easier to quantify the need for proactive investment. We have data about everything on our grid, right? So we have data for what's happening for the loading on our feeders, the condition of our feeders and our substations. The piece of data that I think is missing and is tough to, to get our arms around from, from any side of the table is the exact location of where the solar is going to be located, where the batteries are going to be located. We need to know where on the grid the volume would show up to be able to know how to upgrade that portion of the grid. So all, all sections of the grid are not created equal. They are, they've been built out and built up over time to a point of being reliable to accommodate the load in that area. Um, think about some place like Massachusetts, the western half of the state is more thinly populated than the eastern half. So there's a much more robust infrastructure to handle more megawatts on the east than in the west. However, when you go to the west, because it's more thinly populated, land is more readily available. And that's where the 5, 10, 12, 20 megawatt solar farms want to show up which is understandable, but the infrastructure is not there to handle that because the load never warranted it before. So does that mean we build out the entire western half of the state where, you know, it, it's not clear exactly where you target? I mean, it, that's why I was saying earlier, the higher level you consider it, the more apparent it becomes what needs to happen. But when you try to say exactly where you got to build out, it's tough to be able to justify that spend of that one substation that's going to cost $30 million in saying that we will get all the, the DER um, realized through that. I'm gonna adjust this next question to appeal more broadly to the, 
the Northeast region, but this comes from Arturo. He's asking about non-wireless alternatives and grid enhancing technologies and how the Northeast is approaching both GETs and NWAs. I think, Emma, do you have some non-wireless alternatives projects? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that uh, New England is or the Northeast is a really great candidate area, right? Just the small footprint, uh, really dense development, um, and uh, in some areas, kind of uh, an aversion to kind of bigger infrastructure projects. Um, so I would say that, you know, across the United States, the Northeast is probably one of the more advanced regions for non-wires alternatives because there is a, a baseline understanding of the value and uh, the ability for certain technologies to provide that service. I think that we still have a ways to go. And I think that there's, you know, a, certainly a, a wider possible application area across the Northeast for non-wires alternatives. I think that often, um, you know, batteries, which are frequently used for non-wires alternatives, you know, one of the bigger technologies for that application, um, I think uh, kind of get caught up in um, the same rhetoric that normal batteries, kind of like smaller batteries that are, you know, um, on the distribution system. Uh, there's a, still a ways to go to kind of uh, educate the the broader public of, you know, how we look at non-wires alternatives and how they are used and how they should be valued. So big part of my job, uh, but um, very excited that I think, you know, Maine has a non-wires alternative coordinator. I believe that Rhode Island also has a non-wires uh, alternative project. Um, uh, and then, you know, certainly a, a whole host in New York and Massachusetts. So um, definitely think that there's more potential, especially as, you know, the distribution system becomes increasingly, um, you know, more load intensive with the electrification of everything. So and I'd be happy to share our experience with non-wires in Rhode Island and just some of my reflections on it. Um, as Emma was saying, non-wires alternatives have typically been used or intended to be used to address load growth. Um, as an alternative, obviously, to building up out the system, you know, in part or probably in large part uh, due to decades and decades of really robust energy efficiency programs in Rhode Island, we don't have a lot of load growth. And the load growth that we do have are in very, very micro pockets where conditions are changed very, very rapidly. We've had, you know, several, several instances in the past um, number of years where the utility has been sort of planning and not like they needed to upgrade a feeder. Um, they went through the non-wires process. They identified the potential to use a non-wires alternative to address a feeder upgrade. But as the progress progressed, you know, as, as the project progressed, the utility, for example, um, re-ran their load forecast and the need sort of disappeared. You know, like once they updated their loads, the load the load was no longer there. It didn't even need the project. Or um, Tibbert and Little Compton, they were pro progressing towards a battery solution. And then um, a, a DER came onto the system there and eliminated the need for the non-wires alternative. So I think that non-wires alternatives are very useful in areas that have unique geographies where a traditional project is uh, significantly more expensive because of the ge geography. And Emma, you mentioned Maine, and I think a lot of people go to the Booth Bay Harbor, you know, example where they were otherwise gonna have to run like an 18 mile transmission line down a long peninsula. So I think the geography of the area is, you know, one thing that can make non-wires alternatives make sense, but we are struggling in Rhode Island to find cases where it, where, it, where, it, where there is a, a stable need and 
where the non-wired alternative makes sense as the best solution. Okay, let's take an electric vehicle question. This is from Anthony. He says, with added EV charging, it will be a real challenge for local power distribution capabilities to the grid. Does this drive significantly the grid infrastructure decisions and approvals? And uh, do you provide additional incentives or easier approval for microgrids to take on that challenge of EV load growth? How are you approaching EV load growth at, at National Grid and, and accounting for uh, what we expect to be a pretty meteoric increase over the next you know, five, 10 years, Michael? Yeah, so it's getting factored into the um, the load forecasts. So specifically within the the future forecasting out to you know the next five, ten years, even all the way out to 2050, um, we're adding in the projected electric vehicle growth. So looking at the projected uh, you know adoption rate for the state, and then what that can translate into for for charging stations. Both looking at and thinking about the residential charging stations, you know, individual one-offs that are going to be purchased and owned and operated by an individual customer, and also those charging stations that'll pop up at gas stations, parking lots, and, and even along the major highways for the, the, um, the fast charging stations. Um, so there, it, I don't think that it is going to really change our, our stance and opinion on the microgrid concept. That is something that, um, that gets defined a bunch of different ways depending on who you talk to, but um, it wouldn't be so much a microgrid in that it would uh, kind of own and operate itself independent of the, the utility grid, it would still require that connection to the grid to, to even get like a base charging for say like a battery or something. But we would be looking and we are looking into opportunities to um, pair batteries with the chargers to be able to offset the peak that they would create um, and exploring the right way to manage that. So we have uh, concepts on a couple pilot projects along those lines. And that's still very expensive and, and not widely deployed. So a number of things we still need to figure out there, but is the EV growth uh, conversation is that difficult, more difficult to model on your end when you're talking about the proof that you know, or the evidence that Commissioner Anthony and her colleagues need uh, for making certain investments. It is uh, is the EV side any more challenging than any other resource that we're dealing with? Just given that it's difficult for you to understand how the behind the meter activity is is going to play out. Yeah, so I mean, it would it, it's somewhat easy and, and like all other loads considering what the peak demand could be so we we factor that in as we would any other large load customer being installed onto the grid but now just like any other large large load customer they're not operating a peak all the time so there's always going to be the energy usage pattern so that's where it gets a little more complex because we have to project out how and when the 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 charging of those stations would occur and it's not uh, not something that would ramp up slowly. It could potentially be a very quick hitter and then it go, ramps back down. And those abrupt changes to the grid do cause power quality issues. So that's where it gets a little more nuanced and a little more tricky to, to project. And we do scenario planning and, and you know several different scenario planning and projection analyses to try to make sure that we accommodate the, the grid to, to be able to have those interconnections. Well, I really appreciate this conversation and want to give you each an opportunity to just offer some final thoughts on the state of interconnection in the Northeast, your role in in improving that process and, and really bringing these key stakeholder groups together in a, in a positive way. And we, we hope to be doing that at GridTech in, in Newport in October. Emma, any last thoughts on where things stand today and your your level of optimism that they can get better? Uh, I think I'm very I'm very optimistic. You know, I think that um, I feel very fortunate because I feel like everybody in our industry has the best intent, right? But we're all coming uh, we're all attacking the problem in a different way. 
And I think just what needs to happen is that the conversation needs to allow for all of our vantage points. And, you know, hopefully we can all coalesce on, on something that works for everybody. But understanding that we're, we all have the best intent in mind, um, but we all have, you know, our different domains, of course. So um, I'm very optimistic and I'm very excited. Commissioner Anthony? Sure. I would just take this moment um, first to say that the Rhode Island Public Utilities Commission recently uh, released a draft study um, on storage resources. And I think it's fairly unique and would encourage everyone to take a look at it. Our staff did a really great job of gaming out different scenarios and illustrating that the potential value of storage is very much dependent on um, time and location and functionality. So please take a look. I would also say that October in Newport is um, simply the most glorious time that you could ever be there in one of the most gorgeous places uh, in the country. It's also very close to where I live. And so I look forward to seeing everyone there. You should come make sure that you get a chance to do all of the touristy things that the island has to offer, which are definitely worth it. And I take part even as a non-tourist. So see you in October. And Commissioner Anthony will be part of our, our keynote address at Grid Tech along with uh, Governor Daniel McKee. So we're really excited about that. Um, Michael, close us out. Your final thoughts. Yeah, so I, I I think this is, I'm actually really excited about where we're headed. I, I do think we're, we're working together well uh, with the industry, with the uh, regulators and all the utilities working amongst ourselves. Um, it's, a, it's a great time to be in the industry because it, we're not doing things the way we have done the past hundred years. We are trying to, to think differently. There's a lot of new technologies we're exploring and a lot of different ways of managing the grid. And um, it's uh, whether by choice or not, I mean, the, the change of the world is coming. So there's going to be more electrification, more EV, more uh, clean energy out there. So I think if we, we keep all our minds open, we keep working forward on different ways of thinking um, on every side of the table, we're going to be able to hit those goals. So I'm pretty excited about it. Thanks again to Michael Porcaro, Emma Marshall-Torres, and Abigail Anthony for joining the podcast. Hear from each of them and so many more industry leaders at the Grid Tech Connect Forum Northeast in Newport, Rhode Island, October 23rd through the 25th. Click the link in the episode description to register today and use promo code PODCAST at checkout to save 20%. Factor This is a production of Renewable Energy World and Clarion Energy. Join us every Monday as we break down solar's biggest stories with industry leaders who actually move the needle. And check out our newest podcast, This Week in Clean Tech, every Friday for a recap of the week's top stories in climate and clean energy in 15 minutes or less, right here in the Factor This podcast feed. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Factor This from Renewable Energy World. Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the Interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.